Uh, I just wanted to mention that <clears throat> uh, somebody had asked, perhaps the individual prophet, sh uh, he shook, not so much because <clears throat> the Rabbani Shalom um, or spirituality entered him, but perhaps because of his enormous perception of God, and he was, of course, tremendously frightened and anxious about the the uh, perception of a divine being or perception of divine uh, of spiritual beings, but the truth is that the uh, the uh, shaking, the quaking of the individual was not related to the fear, and uh, there are two reasons for that. First of all, the as part of the prophetic state, as part of the revelation, the revelation would not want the individual to be anxious or frightened because this would take away from the focus that he had on the re revelation itself. So somehow the revelation was very gentle. It would not frighten an individual. Uh, in fact, we see the same thing when Moshe Rabbeinu came to the bush, the Rebbe called him and he said, Moshe, Moshe, in a very gentle way. And he addressed him, and he addressed him in, the, uh, in the voice of his father. Because the truth is that when you experience the divine, it is an enormously gentle experience. God is very gentle when he approaches or he reveals himself to an individual. You know, contrary to what certain people think, that it's a frightening experience. The Roshim is really very, uh, very gentle in that respect. So the revelation itself precluded the individual's anxiety and, fearful, uh, 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 and anxious and fearful state. The second uh, idea why a person's uh, shaking and quaking was not related to his fear of the divine, besides the fact that the revelation itself was gentle and, made, and, and that it made sure that the person would not uh, be frightened, was the fact that the individual who was aware or focused in on the divine revelation was not connected to his body at that time. The individual or the self lost his attachment or his control over his bodily sensations and over his sensory sensations as well as his mental activities. Therefore the body shook independent of the self because the self was not in control of this anymore. The self was riveted into the revelation itself. The body shook independent of the self because it interacted with spiritual and as I said the body cannot tolerate the intrusion of spirituality in its domain. Geshem, physicality, repudiates or cannot, um, uh, cannot withstand the advancement of spirituality, especially the divine presence within its plane. So the body shook of its own, independent of the self, because the self at that point was not even connected to the body, the control that the self has over the body was suspended. The, the, when the body shook, it shook independently of the ego. In any case, <clears throat> that is why when the body shook, it was not because of the fear of God, it was rather because of the enormous um, <clears throat> amount of spirituality that it was being exposed to. Now, <clears throat> to go further, the attachment of the Shekhinah, the Divine Presence, and its subsequent revelation, the Giloi, the revelation, to the Nefesh or to the Self, 
is what initiated everything transmitted to the self in the prophetic vision. That is what initiates or starts the ball rolling. Because the self loses control over its mental faculties, including its imagination. So <clears throat> the Rabbanishlam in his revelation is what initiated the entire process uh, uh, or the, entri the entire transmission to the self of the prophetic vision. The revelation is transmitted to the nefesh el at the highest level. In other words, where the nefesh el or the self is connected to the nearest emanation from God, which, by the way, is oil matzilus, or the world of emanations, which is the world of the spheres. Anyway, the transmission of the, the revelation would begin at that level. This nefesh or self, at that highest level, after it receives the revelation of God at that level, transmits this revelation step by step through the different parts of the self until it reaches the lowest level of the soul or the self, which is the nefesh, the nefesh if you recall. In other words, the lowest form of the soul is the nefesh and that is the self which inhabits this world, or ilma if you recall from previous shurim. So therefore, the revelation would interact or uh, would encounter the self at the highest connection that the self has with God, and the self would then transmit this revelation down through itself, down into this world, to the nefesh, or the lowest spiritual aspect of self. However, the nefesh of nefesh el in other words, the self in this world, does not perceive this revelation unless the medium of the mental plane or dimension is activated. Thus the revelation is then transmitted to the nefesh tachtoina, or the lower or animal soul, if you recall, which is the mental plane. In other words, the revelation is transmitted to the nefesh tachtoina, the mental plane, in terms of the faculty of the imagination, and this imagination is then stimulated to form images and visions in its usual normal manner of functioning. Thus, the divine revelation is ultimately transmitted to the imagination of the nefesh uh, tachtoina, the lower soul, and then visualized or depicted in its normal manner. In other words, images of the concepts of the revelation are forced on the imagination by the power of the divine revelation itself. In the prophetic state, while the imagination is the recipient of divine concepts, it cannot initiate any image or vision on its own. In other words, the self cannot initiate any kind of image <clears throat> on its own. And we know that the self initiates images either consciously or unconsciously either through the conscious will or the unconscious will. But in the prophetic state, it could not initiate any kind of image. The mental activities of mind were completely suspended to the self. But rather the self can, or rather the imagination, can only be the vehicle to manifest the divine revelation. In the prophetic state, only the Rabbanishlam can stimulate 
the mind, the imagination, that Im images or visions should arise from this imagination and present itself to the awareness of the self. Now, these images convey to the, pro to the Prophet various perceptions, ideas, and information that are stimulated by the attachment to the Shekhinah or the covid of the Rabbanu Shalom, his divine glory. Therefore, the subject of the revelation then becomes fixed in the Prophet's mind and when he <coughs> lives, when he leaves his dream state or trance state and returns to, the normal to his normal conscious waking state, this knowledge or revelation is retained with total perfect clarity. <coughs> so we see therefore that the sequence of the mechanism is that the divine revelation would appear or reveal itself to the self as it is attached to the highest world and the self would then transmit this revelation down through the spiritual worlds until the self became aware of it, this revelation in this world. But the self could not perceive that information unless it would activate the nefesh tachtoin or the mental plane, the imagination, and then the self could view this information via its own imagination. That is the way the prophetic revelation took place. That is the way the prophetic revelation was transmitted uh, to the self in this world. We therefore see in summary <coughs> that the images of the mental faculty of the regular imagination was the expressive mode for revelations concerning the Shekhinah and the Hanhogus of God toward mankind. In other words, the way God interacts with mankind. These intense, profound images were viewed by the Prophet only in a dream or trance state, where all sensory and bodily sensations, as well as all mental activities, ceased totally. In other words, the self was not able to generate any thoughts, images, or feelings. <clears throat> and also, the self was compelled to intensely focus in on the stirrings or the images that were envisioned by the imagination through the power of the divine revelation in a totally passive posture. In other words, the self lost all control over stimulating its own mental activities, whether it be thoughts, images, or feelings. This is basically <clears throat> the sequence of the uh, mechanism <clears throat> of how the revelation worked its way down to the individual himself. So we see, therefore, that prophecy could only be realized if the individual entered a dream or trance state in which he was compelled to view his own images in his own imagination in a passive state. In other words, he lost all ability to control his mental activities and he did not receive any sensations anymore. It was in this trance state that he focused in on the, uh, on the images of his mind and the images of his mind would represent the divine revelation. And the images in the mind arose from the stimulation from the divine revelation itself. It is interesting to note that the dream or trance state of the prophet is in reality a true meditative state 
which the Prophet was compelled to experience. In other words, what the Prophet was really experiencing was a meditative state, but it was compelled rather than free-willed. And that is again the connection between meditation and prophecy. If you remember, a meditative state is where one attains super-focused awareness without any sensations, sensory or bodily, and without any mental activities, thoughts, images, or feelings whatsoever. In other words, that an individual attains super-focused awareness upon a particular object. This object is called the object of awareness or the object of meditation. This is the same state as the dream or trance state of the Prophet. He also experienced super-focused awareness without any sensations or mental activities. The only difference was that in the dream state of prophecy, the object of focused awareness was the externally induced images of the imagination concerning a divine revelation, and that the self, that's the first difference, the second difference is that the self was compelled or thrust into this meditative state through the hashpor, the causative force of God. And the third difference was that the self could not control any of its mental faculties until the compelled meditative state was over. Thus, the prophetic state is really a compelled meditative state where the object of meditation is the images expressing a divine revelation. In other words, a meditative state is no sensations or mental activities, super-focused awareness or consciousness, and it has an object of awareness. In other words, this is what the person is meditating on. A prophetic dream or trans state is no sensations and mental activities. Control over mental faculties is suspended. Super-focused awareness or consciousness and that this super-focused awareness is compelled. You notice that they're the same things. The only difference is, is that the focused awareness is compelled in the prophetic state or the prophetic meditative state and that the self has no control at all over the mental faculties. His control is suspended. Also, in the prophetic state, the object of awareness was the visions and images of the self's own imagination being used as the conveyor or the vehicle for the expressive form of divinely revealed knowledge, enlightenment, and the perception of the Shekhinah, the Divine Presence, or the covet of God. <clears throat> Thus we see that the meditative state is really the prophetic state, but it is compelled on the individual. <clears throat> this mechanism of the images <clears throat> of the imagination being used as an instrument or vehicle for prophecy is also true by Ruach HaKodesh, divine inspiration, and also by prophetic dreams. We will see, when we talk about prophetic dreams, that prophetic dreams also used the vehicle of the imagination to express the truth that it revealed. And also, there is a difference between the fact that a prophet had a prophetic state while he was dreaming and a prophetic dream. The prophetic state, 
that intruded itself on a prophet who was sleeping means that the dream revealed a prophecy. In other words, the dream continued, but the message or the images was a prophetic one. In a prophetic dream, the individual was dreaming, okay, but the dream itself was not a prophetic dream. It did not have the impact. It did not have the revelation of the Shekhinah or the divine presence at all. But I'll talk about more of that when I get to prophetic dreams. Now, this incredible state where one experienced the Shekhinah itself, the div divine presence itself, was initiated by the Prophet meditating on particular shamus or names of God. The Prophet's freely induced meditative state then yielded the compelled meditative state called the prophetic state. In other words, the Prophet would achieve prophecy by meditating on a particular Shem. Then what would happen is that the Prophet would be thrust into a meditative state with the object of his meditation, the revelation of uh, God's Shekhinah. That's really what happened. He went from a freely induced prophetic state to a compelled, uh, uh, or rather he went from a freely induced meditative state to a compelled meditative state, and the compelled meditative state, meditative state was prophecy. In order for the meditation on particular Shemus to work, certain prerequisite conditions and procedural conditions had to be met or satisfied. If not, then one could not experience either prophecy or Ruach HaKodesh. At this point we can ask, what is the nature of these conditions? And why were they so necessary for the attainment of these profound spiritual states? I'm now going to go into the conditions of prophecy. And it is important not only for the understanding of what was necessary to achieve the prophetic state, but the truth is that the conditions which one had to meet in order to achieve prophecy is really the essence of the avoider, the essence of the task of man. And it is the essential and fundamental path that a person must tread upon in order to achieve advanced spirituality. In other words, if you would wish to become a spiritual being, the same conditions apply to you that apply to a prophet who wished to achieve prophecy. That is why I want to go into the conditions of prophecy. Because not only is it a revelation of how to serve God even now, but also it is conditions on how to achieve great spiritual states, great uh, advancement of spirituality, and also it is necessary to know this in order to achieve spiritual states that one can achieve today, in today's times, which I will go into later, the actual spiritual states that one can achieve in today's times. But in any case, one must know these conditions for these reasons. One, to know what the conditions of prophecy were. Two, to know what the essence of the avodah, the task of man is in serving God. Three, to know these conditions because 
knowledge of them must be attained in order to achieve true spiritual advanced levels and four, that if a person wants to engage in actually achieving uh, possible spiritual states today one must engage also or one must fulfill these conditions now what are these conditions there are essentially four broad categories whose successful attainment and adoption would yield for the individual a state of spiritual receptivity or sensitization or it would yield for the individual a transcendental readiness these four categories are really four states that require great effort great energy great time and great self-sacrifice on the part of the individual but you should know achievement of them in other words if you had actually accomplished these conditions satisfied these conditions then the reward that the person would uh, achieve would be enormous in fact <clears throat> the achievement of them would reward the person with an enormously greater reward and spiritual ecstasy that was well worth the time, the energy, and the self-sacrifice that was necessary for the attainment. So the truth is, in the end, it was worth it. Because the product you got was infinitely superior to the amount of time that you had to work on these conditions in order to achieve that state. What are these four states <clears throat> that also summarize the four states of the Avoid of the task of man? The four states are the following. The first one is called the precious state, the detachment state, the state of detachment. The second state is called the tahara state, or the state of purity, the purity state. The third state was called the nikius state, or the untainted state. And the fourth state was called the kedusha state, or the holiness state. Each one, whether it be the precious state, the Tahara state, the Nikiu state, or the Kedusha state, or in English, whether it be the detachment state, the purity state, the untainted state, and the holiness state, each one was crucial and necessary for attain attainment in order to accomplish the realization of either Nevoah or Ruch HaKodesh, and as I had said, to achieve also the realization <coughs> of advanced spirituality, advanced spiritual levels, and also to accomplish the realization of certain spiritual phenomena which is possible in today's times. Now, what was the first state or the precious state? The precious state or the detachment state <coughs> is <coughs> the following. <coughs> There is a certain principle which states <clears throat> that physicality and spirituality are mutually exclusive entities which existentially repudiate each other. Thus, Geshem, which is physicality, repudiates, abhors, repulses Ruchnius or spirituality, and vice versa. Spirituality or Ruchnius repulses, abhors, and repudiates Geshem or physicality. They cannot coexist with each other, nor can they share the same existential plane. 
they are not only totally opposites, but their opposition demands negation or exclusion. <clears throat> the entities of Geshem, physicality and Ruchni, or spirituality, behave under what's called the principle of mutual exclusivity of antithetical beings. And antithetical beings were spirituality and physicality. <clears throat> they were antithetical and they were mutually exclusive. One could not exist in the presence of the other. That is a very important fundamental principle to know. Now, it's interesting to note, and I just briefly mentioned it previously, that existence of matter and its antithesis, antimatter, was created to reflect physically and symbolically the existence of two other antithetical beings, which, which absolutely negate or repulse and repudiate each other. In fact, just as matter can annihilate antimatter if brought into close contact with each other, so also spirituality can annihilate physicality when they are brought into contact with each other. The same is reverse, that physicality can annihilate spirituality if they are brought into contact, close contact with each other. This kind of understanding that physical phenomena can actually mirror spiritual phenomena is an important one. This is an example the of physical phenomena, namely matter and antimatter, and the properties of annihilation when they come in close contact with each other, which really, re which is what it really represents, <clears throat> or rather, it really derives its existence from the spiritual phenomena of Geshem and Ruchni physicality and spirituality, and their mutual repudiation and annihilation. In other words, this world reflects the spiritual world. And based on spiritual ideas, that is what God did in this world. Because there is a concept of matter and antimatter in spiritual plane repudiating each other and annihilating each other, the Revolution created a world that has matter and antimatter also, that also act the very same way. And I had mentioned many, uh, other, uh, at other times that not only is this principle reflect the spiritual reality, but there are also physical phenomena, physical principles that also reflect spiritual realities. For instance, the concept of reaction, action, and reaction, the third law of Newton, that for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. The reason why we have such a physical law is because of the concept of din, or justice or reciprocity. If you do a move here, there is an equal and opposite move that is made in heaven. And since that exists in heaven in order to reward or punish you, in other words, reward and punishment is consequences of your acts, therefore that concept must exist in the physical plane. And it manifests itself as the third law of Newton, which is the law of action and reaction. <clears throat> Another example, is the uh, first the law of inertia, which states that an object at rest tends to remain at rest, or an object in motion tends to remain in motion, in motion unless it is acted upon by an external force. And the reason why that law exists is because it is also a spiritual law. Since man can only achieve ulam habo, the future world, by moving himself, or actually working and endeavoring to gain ulam habo, 
Therefore, there is a, a law of inertia. In other words, inertia means that man will be placed in a state where he must move to achieve something. If a man wants to go in motion, he's got to move or exert an external force to get into motion. The same idea exists in Ruchnius. If a man wants to acquire Ilam Habo, he's got to work to get to Ilam Habo. So the concept of a state <coughs> whereby uh, an individual would have to change that state in order to achieve some other state exists is because <coughs> this condition or this principle was necessary in order for a man to work uh, in terms of achieving ilm habbo. Anyway, there are many such physical principles which can be shown to be derived from the fact that the spiritual world must employ these principles in order for man to achieve ilm habbo. That is why they also exist on the physical plane. In any case, to get back to our topic, <coughs> thus accordingly the nefesh el cannot be attached to Geshem and spiritual entities at the same time. This is what we see. In other words, <clears throat> since we see that spirituality negates physicality, and physicality negates spirituality, the nefesh or the self cannot be attached to both Geshem or physicality and Ruchni or spirituality at the same time. Since the spiritual phenomena of Navua prophecy and Ruch HaKodesh, which is divine inspiration, involve attachments of the Nefesh al to the Shekhinah, or the Divine Presence, and to spiritual entities, then if the Nefesh al is also linked or bound or attached to Geshem in an excessive way, these previous attachments to the Shekhinah and spiritual beings becomes extremely difficult, if not impossible, to achieve. And we know that without attachments to the Shekhinah or spiritual beings, there can be no Nevoah prophecy or Ruach HaKodesh divine inspiration at all. <clears throat> Thus we see that Geshem, physicality, materialism, prevents or inhibits the spiritual phenomenon of attachment of the Nefesh al to the Shekhinah or to spiritual beings, thereby precluding Nevoah prophecy or Ruach HaKodesh divine inspiration. This principle that Geshem, physicality, inhibits or prevents spirituality, attachment to the Nefesh Yoyna, therefore necessitates, necessitates two conditions to be fulfilled. One is procedural and the other is prerequisite. What have we seen so far before I go into these two conditions? We see <clears throat> that spirituality and physicality or materialism are antithetical beings. They exclude each other. And that the nefesh al if it seizes upon physicality, cannot be attached to spirituality at the same time, because the spirituality will repudiate the nefesh al because it is now seizing physicality. If that's the case, if the nefesh al wants spirituality, it must get rid of the physicality, or it will never become attached to spiritual beings or the Divine Presence. And if it cannot become attached to these beings, to the Shekhinah or to the Divine Presence, 
or to spiritual beings, then it can never achieve prophecy or divine inspiration. Now, as I said, therefore, since we see that the Nefesh Elyonah cannot hold two things, Geshem and Ruchni, at the same time and expect to experience Ruch HaKodesh and Nevoah, therefore there are two conditions that arise that must be fulfilled before the self or the Nefesh Elyonah experiences attachment and therefore experiences prophecy or Ruch HaKodesh. One of these conditions is procedural, in other words, that during the procedure of meditation on Hashem, the Nefesh Elyonah has to fulfill a condition. The other condition is prerequisite, in other words, that the self has to have fulfilled this condition before it actually engages in the procedure of meditation of Hashem. What is the procedural condition that the Nefesh Elyonah must engage in while it is meditating on Hashem? The self is existentially and ontologically connected to the object of its awareness. I had mentioned this previously. The more the self is aware <clears throat> or involved or preoccupied or obsessed with an object, the greater is the ontological connection or attachment to that object. If the object of awareness is physical or material, then the self or the nefesh is bound or hooked or connected or attached to Geshem, physicality. Now, sensory and bodily sensations, as well as our thoughts, feelings, and images, in other words, mental activities, are really the outcomes of our connection to the physical world. These thoughts, feelings, or images, these mental activities, and certainly the sensory input that we receive, receive and the bodily sensations, really express physical content. And they serve, therefore, to constantly keep us immersed and attached to the physical world in Geshem. What are we always thinking about? We're always thinking about something physical. What are we feeling? Well, we're feeling an affect about some physical thing. What are we imagining? Well, the image is something physical. The bodily sensation, we're feeling something bodily or something from our physical bodies. We are seeing things, which is the contact or the hook to the physical world. Therefore, sensations or mental activities really connect us to the physical world because they are always expressing physical content. In fact, the, spirit, the specific content of any sensation or mental activity is determined by our interaction and involved, and involvement, I should say, with Geshem and the physical material world. Therefore, when a person meditates on a particular Shem, name of God, to achieve a spiritual state, he must remove all sensations and mental activities, not only because they should not distract him and interfere with his super-focused awareness on that particular Shem, but also to remove all connections to Geshem, or physicality, connections to the physical world, which, which link and attach one to the physical world, thereby inhibiting and preventing the spiritual phenomena of attachment from occurring. In other words, 
You must refrain from mental activities, sensations. You must clear the mind or put out or exclude all extraneous input, not only because you don't want to be distracted from focusing on that particular Shem, but you must refrain from these extraneous input because if you don't, they will hook you to the physical world. And on one side, you are trying to meditate on a Shem to achieve attachment, and the other side, extraneous input is, a, is hooking you or connecting you to the physical world. And we know that the two cannot mix. <clears throat> Thus, excluding and removing or shutting out all sensations and mental activities was crucial to remove Geshen, Geshem or physical attachments of the Nefesh or the Self while it was endeavoring to attach itself to spiritual entities. Thus, clearing the mind from extraneous input was a procedural condition in order to allow the procedure of meditation upon Hashem to operate successfully without any obstruction or interference from Geshem or physicality attachments as a result of this extraneous input. So we see, therefore, that when you meditate on Hashem, part of the procedural condition is do not allow any extraneous input because this would link you to the physical world and make it impossible for you to achieve an attachment to spiritual beings even though you focused awareness on the Shem. The second reason why you had to exclude extraneous input was that you should not be distracted when you focused awareness on the Shem. So therefore we see that excluding extraneous input was a procedural conditions for the purposes of achieving attachment because you would remove any connection to the physical world and also it was a procedural condition in order not to be distracted from the focused awareness on that Shem. So therefore we see that the idea of physicality excluding spirituality or negating spirituality made necessary the fact that when you meditate on the Shem, you could not uh, have any extraneous input which would connect you to the physical world. You could not have that in your mind while you were meditating. Therefore, in order to attain attachment to spiritual beings or the Shekhinah, the Divine Presence, or the covert of God, the Divine Glory, thereby yielding Ruach HaKodesh and Nevoah, respectively, the Nefesh or the Self, the individual, must disattach itself from all Geshem connections, all physicality, all materialistic connections, and attachments during the procedure of meditating upon Shemus. Therefore, all extraneous mental input, whether it be sensations, bodily or sensory, whether it be thoughts, images or feelings, all extraneous mental input must be locked out at that time of meditation. For they link and connect the nefesh or the self or person to the physical and material world, which is Geshem. This then is the precious state or disattachment state. In other words, disattachment from Geshem. That's what precious means. Disattachment from what? From Geshem or physicality or materiality. 
This enables attachment of the nefesh alyoyna to spiritual beings and the divine itself. If an individual is able to disassociate or disattach himself from physicality and materialism, this will enable the individual or the nefesh alyoyna to attach himself to spiritual beings or the divine presence itself. Thus, precious or disattachment from Geshem materialism is a procedural condition. However, precious from Geshem is also a prerequisite condition taking place even before the person meditates upon Shemus to achieve Ruach HaKodesh or Nevoah. Now what do I mean? Until now I've explained that it is necessary to disattach yourself from Geshem while you are meditating. In other words, you have to push extraneous mental phenomena out of your mind. We are now going into the area and we are now seeing that it is not sufficient only to remove Geshem while you are meditating. But you must remove Geshem or disattach yourself from Geshem even before you begin the procedure of meditating on the Shem. If a person is continuously desirous of material and physical goals and pursuits, then they suffuse, they actually pervade and envelop his consciousness. He constantly experiences their pull or attraction, and he is therefore also being motivated to engross himself in the physical. He decides, based on these motives, and wills his behavior to seek out and attain them, always striving toward these physical attainments. Thus, this person is very much attached to the physical and material world, making true spiritual advancement toward attachment to spiritual beings impossible. But you may ask, why can't a person just shut out all thoughts, motives, decisions, willings, strivings, feelings and images about Geshem while he is meditating on Hashem? In other words, let that just be a procedural condition. Why is it necessary that a person has to disattach himself from Geshem also as a prerequisite condition? In other words, before he embarks on the procedure of meditation itself. But as long as he disattaches himself from Geshem during the actual procedure of meditation, then so what if previously, in other words, previous to the meditation, he pursues or strives and values physical physical and materials, material goals. In other words, why should a simultaneous involvement with a Geshem life interfere or inhibit spirituality since he is able to clear the mind and exclude all extraneous new mental input while he meditates on Hashem? In other words, why do we have to have this Geshem disattachment as a prerequisite to, to uh, the procedure of meditation? <coughs> How are we to understand this? Well, the fundamental idea is really this. As stated before, self, the individual, <clears throat> is existentially attached and connected to the object of its awareness. What a person thinks about, that is what he is existentially connected to. What a person thinks about, that's what he is. 
If that object is physical and material in nature, and the self is very involved in desiring and pursuing that object, then the self or the nefesh is greatly hooked or connected to Geshem and the physical world. Even though the self does not think of Geshem consciously during the meditation procedure, the self still continuously maintains its awareness of the desired physical object unconsciously, and therefore the self is sensitized to that object continuously. In other words, it is sensitized to the presence or the absence of that object unconsciously. And this person is intuitively aware if that object is absent or present, since it plays such great priority in his value system. Thus the self is motivated toward the procurement and possession of the object unconsciously. Thus the desire or motive of a physical object or even the idea of materialism and physical wealth can be totally unconscious to the person. The decision to strive for materialism, the willing of one's behavior toward materialism can all be beyond a person's normal state of awareness. And even when he is not actually thinking about Geshem or material, materialism, his unconscious will is constantly stimulating his behavior toward the achievement of greater Geshem, materialism and physicality. Thus, the self can be in pursuit of a physical object unconsciously. That person may actually be exhibiting behaviors designed to attain greater physical wealth and pleasures without him even realizing it or the intensity of his drive and the attachment to the physical. In other words, even though a person is consciously unaware of his intense Geshem motives or drives, even though he's, he's consciously unaware of his decisions, his willing, the active willing in other words, and consequent strivings toward their fulfillment, this attachment toward Geshem inhibits spiritual attachment to the self or Nefesh from occurring, making Ruach HaKodesh and Nevoah impossible to achieve. In other words, we see that do not think that if you are unaware of the fact that you are striving toward material wealth, that this actually does not interfere with the phenomena of spiritual attachment. It does. Because since you are connected to the object of your awareness, it does not make a difference if the object of your awareness is conscious or unconscious. As long as that is what you are focused on, even unconsciously, as long as that is what you desire, that is where your intensity lies, that is what you will, and that is what you strive toward, Geshem exists in your life as the main thrust. Therefore, spirituality is impossible to become attached to you. Or in other words, it is impossible for you to achieve a true spiritual state because you are immersed in materialism and physicality, even though you're not aware of it. Therefore, we see that we must have a prerequisite condition of removing or disattachment from materialism in order to achieve spirituality. But how do we get away from this tremendous attachment toward Geshem? It's certainly, especially on the, at the unconscious level. Well, the only way to do it is that one must tremendously minimize and de-emphasize his immersion and involvement with the physical and material 
world, material and physical pursuits or goals. On the conscious level of the person's awareness, in order to yield a subsequent de-emphasis and indifference and devaluing of materialism on the unconscious level of awareness also. The greater the insignificance or unimportance or meaninglessness and absurdity that one maintains and practices toward Geshem or physicality, the greater this meaningless meaninglessness that one um, espouses toward Geshem involvement, the greater the precious state or the disattachment state that one achieves toward Geshem, and therefore the more likely and receptive one becomes toward more advanced spiritual states. In other words, the way to work on yourself is you've got to become uninvolved. You have to de-emphasize materialism and physicality as a priority in your life. If you work on it that way, then eventually the unconscious level also, the unconscious level of the functioning of an individual will also cease to constantly will and strive in that direction. Therefore, if you meditate on Hashem, not only will you succeed in not having or not being involved in Geshem, in other words, you will achieve at Geshem disattachment on the conscious level, you will also succeed during meditation on Geshem disattachment on the unconscious level too. And that is what is extremely important. That is why true spirituality, and I repeat, true spirituality demands a simple, uncomplicated life. In other words, a life that is not, that is not complicated with excessive Geshem attachments and physical world involvements. So it requires a simple, uncomplicated life. It requires simple furnishings. It requires many times fasting or a reduction in pleasurable pursuits because when a person engages in a lot of pleasures, it reinforces the drives to seek more pleasure and it is much more difficult to refrain from enjoying a very pleasurable life. <clears throat> and in addition to this, one must have a constant involvement with spiritual pursuits. If you do this, then you will be fulfilling probably the most difficult condition of all toward the advancement of spirituality. And that is to de-emphasize the physical and material in your life. And just to employ it to the extent that is necessary to live. But not to see that as something which is all-encompassing. Not to see that as the priority which demands all your time. And it's very difficult. It takes a lot of effort, a lot of sincerity and honesty, and it takes an enormous drive to become spiritual in order to contend with physical drives. It is not easy to become a tzaddik, believe me. It is, it is even more difficult to become a kodesh, which is greater than a tzaddik. And it is extremely difficult to become a navi, even if one could achieve it in today's times. But like I said before, the reward made the attachment toward the physical look ridiculous. The reward was nevuah, or the greatest spiritual phenomena a human being can experience in this world. It was true divakus, true 
clinging or attachment to the Shekhinah itself. And the ecstasy, the exhilaration, and the euphoria that was experienced by the Novi is not to be described in human terms. This then is the precious state or disattachment state. In other words, the disattachment of the self or the nefesh yoyna from Geshem in order to procure attachment toward the spiritual. In other words, to seek disattachments of the self from the physical and thereby loosen the physical bonds on the self, on self-awareness. Now, if this is true of lower spiritual states, how much more is it true of Ruach HaKodesh and Nevoa, the greatest spiritual phenomena a person can achieve or experience in this world? If it takes so much effort to become a tzaddik, to become a Kodesh, could you imagine the effort it takes to become a Novi? But like I say, it's well worth it. It is even well worth it to become a tzaddik and a Kodesh now to achieve that level of dvekas to try to de-emphasize material wealth. And as I mentioned, one cannot do this suddenly. One has to proceed along this the way the Rabbani Shalom showed Yaakov in a prophetic dream, in a true prophetic revelation. Yaakov Avinu, on his way to Choron, saw the dream of a ladder, and that ladder symbolized the journey that a man takes to go from earth to the heavens. Or in other words, the journey that man, or the task that man has to channel all physicality into spirituality, because that's really the way it's done. And he saw this ladder, which means that the avoider can proceed step by step. And if you think that you should jump to spirituality overnight, then you should know it is nothing more than the Yetzirah telling you how to become a tzaddik. Because there is nothing better that he would like than you should try and fall and give up in disgust. In any case, that is really the way to proceed. Uh, proceed. But like I say, it is, it is necessary to proceed to remove Geshem in order to reach truly spiritual levels. And certainly to reach advanced spiritual levels. We have now finished the concept of the precious state as a condition, a necessary condition for the achievement of Nevoah or Ruach HaKodesh, prophecy or Ruach HaKodesh. The next state or condition that was necessary for the attainment of Ruach HaKodesh and Nevoah, divine inspiration and prophecy, was what's called the Tahara state or the purity state. A person had to be clean or pure from the spiritual entity called Tuma. Now, Tuma is a certain spiritual entity that really exists, which we cannot observe. However, there are a great many laws that refer to the spiritual entity called Tuma. And Tuma, without really going into now, is in some way connected with the Zoyhama of the Nochosh that was introduced to mankind after Adam Rishon sinned. When Adam Rishon sinned and he ate from the tree, what he introduced into the entire creation was what's called Zoyhama, 
the poison or the defilement of the snake. That is really a symbolic term. What it really means is that the nochosh, the snake, who is really the representation of the sitra achra, who is the samoel, what that really means is that he was given power over the entire creation. And that is uh, symbolically referred to as the zoyham of the nochosh. And this entered man. That is the origin of the concept of tumor as an entity. In any case, uh, a person had to be clean or pure from the spirit, this spiritual entity called tumor. A person who was tomei, an individual who had tumor, was called tomei, or impure, or unclean. I don't like to use the word unclean because it sounds like he needs a shower or a bath. The truth is impure is a better word because the word pure really means to be free of any admixture on foreign impurity, foreign substance. So when we say the word toho, it really means pure. It means that the person does not have tumor. Tahara is the state whereby a person does not have tumor. Tahara is the absence of tumor. In any case, a person who has tumor or who had tumor residing in himself could not enter the sanctified areas of the Beis Hamikdash. You were not allowed to to enter certain areas of the Beis Hamikdash while you were tumay, while you contained this spiritual entity called tumor. Nor could he eat of any foods that contained holiness, such as truma or khala. A coin who can eat truma, which is the offering that was given uh, when a person uh, has certain produce. He separated a certain amount of produce and he called it truma. This was given to the coin as a gift. In any case, this food had a certain kedusha or holiness attached to it. And if you were tome, you could not eat it. In any case, tuma is antithetical to spirituality or holiness, kedusha just like Geshem is, and neither could be contained in the same space. They were opposites and were mutually exclusive. They abhor, repudiate, and negate each other's presence. Just like Geshem is antithetical to spirituality, because spirituality is the opposite of material, Tuma is also antithetical to spirituality. Geshem is the opposite substance of spirituality, and Tumor is the opposite, the opposite in terms of holiness of spirituality. So in other words, if you talk about the substance of spirituality, its opposite was Geshem, or materiality, physicality. If you talk about holiness of spirituality, its opposite was Tumor, you see. Substance of spirituality negates the substance called materialism or physicality. The holiness of spirituality negates tumor, which is the opposite of the holiness of spirituality. Now, tumor could be contracted by a person under certain conditions. <clears throat> in addition, the spiritual entity of tumor could reside in articles, it could reside in objects, it could reside in food. That entity of tumor, that metaphysical entity, could reside in physical substances. 
Now, the Seder Taharos, the order of Taharos of the Mishnah, deals primarily with the laws that govern the flow of Tumor from object to object and how you remove Tumor. Because Tumor, <clears throat> even though we cannot observe it because it is a metaphysical entity, is governed by specific laws. These laws were revealed to us in the Torah and they are enumerated basically in Seder Taharos, the order of Taharos or purities, which is part of the Mishnah, the sixth order of the Mishnah. And those laws basically deal with those laws which determine or govern the flow of Tumah as it moves from object to object. And Tumah can be transmitted or communicated from one object to another. In any case, the spiritual entity called Tumah could be removed from its place of residence, whether it be man or objects, through various means. The two most important means being the ashes of the Pora Duma and the Mikveh. Now, what was the Pora Duma? The Pora Duma was a cow which was totally red. If there were more than two hairs on this cow that were not red, it was invalid as a Pora Duma, a red cow. This cow was burnt and the ashes were then sprinkled with water and if somebody wanted to become Tohor, if he had touched a dead body, that's called Tumas Mace, if he touched the dead body then he became what's called the Tamei Mace. In order for that Tumas Mace, the defilement or tumor that resulted in man as a result of his contact with a dead body, in order for that to be removed, the only vehicle or method that it can be removed by was the method of the Poraduma. The mikveh, on the other hand, could remove almost all other tumors. But the Poraduma was the only thing that you could employ to remove tumor that you had contracted as a result of contacting or being under the same roof as or in close proximity to a mace, a corpse. So we see that the two most important methods of removal of tumor is the poraduma, the ashes of the poraduma, which remove tumor that one contracted from either touching or in being under one roof with a corpse, and the mikveh, which is a ritual pool of water in which anything that was tomei would be immersed, thereby becoming tall, pure, or clean. Now, as I said, only the paraduma could remove tuma from a mace. Nothing else could. Therefore, today, we are all Tomei mace. We are all Tomei because we cannot remove the tuma in a corpse uh, that we have as a result of con uh, contracting tuma from a corpse. Because even if we immerse ourselves in the mikveh, it won't help. We don't have the paraduma. So even if we immerse ourselves in a mikvah, we can remove other tumor, but we cannot remove the tumor of Tumas Mace. The tumor, the metaphysical entity, which we receive as a result of contacting a, uh, a dead body. In any case, tumor had to be removed or a tahara state, a purity state, achieved in order for spiritual or divine attachments before they could occur. Thus, no tumor could be present in the person 
trying to attain either Ruach HaKadosh Nevoah because the Tumah would prevent or inhibit the attachment of spiritual beings or the Shekhinah. The Tahara state was therefore part of the procedural conditions that had to be fulfilled for meditation on Hashem to operate and subsequently achieve attachments for that individual. And in reference to this, I'd like to mention an incident that occurred whereby there was a Tano whose name was Rabbi Nechunya ben Akona. He happened to be the author of the great Kabbalistic text called the Bahir. In any case, Rabbi Nechunya ben Akona, who was even among Tanoim, among the greatest Mekubolim, even among Tanoim, in any case, at one time he was meditating upon Hashem and he achieved Ruach HaKadosh, which was more or less normal for him. Rabbi Akiva, the famous Rabbi Akiva ben Yosef, and Rabbi Yishmuel wanted to bring him out of this intense spiritual state for whatever reasons. And in order to do that, they touched him with a begged nidah, a cloth which had come in contact with a woman who was menstruating, and that woman therefore is Tomei, therefore her clothing is also Tomei. In any case, they touched him with a begged nida, that cloth from that woman, uh, and they touched this to Rabbi Nechunya ben Akona. This of course made Rabbi Nechunya ben Akona Tomei. He immediately came out of his trance, or his meditative state. Uh, it is not recorded what Rabbi Nechunya ben Akona's reaction was to this intrusion on his uh, advanced uh, uh, you know, level of Ruach HaKodesh. But in any case, just to show you how quick Tumor would destroy the spiritual state that a person had achieved. Here's Rabbi Nechunya ben Akona meditating and achieving some sublime state of Ruach HaKodesh and Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Shmuel want to bring him out of it so they didn't shake him and say, hey Rabbi come out of it, what they just did is the most efficient way. Just touched him with a bigger nida and he immediately woke up. That's how sensitive spiritual attachment is to the slightest tumor. That's an interesting incident. Thus, we see that the tumor residing in the bigger nida disengaged the attachment of Rabbi Nechunya that he was experiencing, in other words, and abruptly terminated the Ruach HaKodesh state. Now, I just want to mention that in terms of Tahara, purity state, that even though we cannot remove Tumor, or that metaphysical entity called Tumor today, because we, or rather from the Tumay Mace, from the uh, corpse, um, it is still very important, the entire concept of Mikvah, because true spiritual states can be achieved only by uh, immersion in a, in a mikveh in, on a certain co continuous basis. This is true primarily for men. For women, they have that anyway once a month. But anyway, in, in terms of, uh, of, a, of a man, true spiritual states can really only be reached if a person goes to the mikveh and removes the other tumor. Because tumor is an antithetical being to kedusha or holiness. And in order to be the recipient of Kedusha, one must uh, remove Tumor. So uh, the mikvah removes 99% of the Tumor. Let me go further. 
the next the next state or condition that was necessary for the attainment of Ruach HaKodesh and Nevoah was the Nikius state or the untainted state. This was a state in which a person was free from sin or Chet and therefore since there was no Chet or sin present the Nefesh or the Self was untainted by the effects of sin. Now, how does Chatoim interfere? How do sins actually interfere or inhibit or prevent one from attaining the spiritual phenomena of Ruach HaKodesh and Nevoah? How is this done? In other words, why is this a condition? Now we are going to go into the fundamental understanding of the effects of a sin, not merely the sin itself. There are three detrimental effects that, sin, that the sin produces for an individual committing them. And this is important knowledge. So when the person is about to engage on a chet, let him know that these three things are happening. When one sins, this is the first effect of a chet, a sin. When one sins, the sitra achra, now the sitra achra means the other side, which means all the forces of evil, which includes the chief evildoer himself, which is Samuel, and includes all his agents or his hosts, all the forces of evil, evil that God created for various specific purposes. In any case, when one sins, the Sitra Akhra, or the evil forces, is given greater access to that person's body, and therefore can increase the intensity of his drives and urges, thereby increasing a person's involvement and preoccupation with, a physical, with physical and material pursuits. Thus, the potential for excessive Geshem attachments is enhanced because of the Chet, making it much more difficult for the person to disattach himself from the Geshem of the physical world. Thus, the first effect of sin is potentially far greater Geshem bonding, making the attainment of spiritual phenomena extremely unlikely to achieve. In other words, when a person did a chet, the sitra achra, or the satan, or the malchamovis, or the yetzahora, depends on what job he is doing, that's what depends on the name you give him. In other words, the sitra achra is the name from the, for the entire side of evil forces. However, the principal force of evil was the angel called Samuel. Sam means poison, ale of course means God, the poison of God. And he had three functions. The first one was to tempt man, and in that function he was called the Yetzirah. The next function he served, that if man listened to the temptations and sinned, he would then prosecute man, and in that position or role, he was called the Satan, the prosecutor. And his third role was that of the executor of the uh, the uh, uh, judgment that was meted out, he was the executor in that role, he was called the Malchamovis. So Samuel has three roles, and depending on his role, that is the name he was called. And if you may ask, as an aside, an angel cannot have more than one role. For those who have thought to ask it, 
The answer is that it is really one role. Samuel is appointed to be the guardian over the realization and the, uh, the uh, continuation of din or justice. And justice demands all three facets. Temptation, prosecution, and execution of the punishment. In any case, he was the guardian over justice. And uh, this is uh, who Samuel was. In any case, he was given, or he and his hosts were given far greater access. They were given permission to invade the body much greater when a person sins. And what that meant is that the person would feel far greater attachments to Geshem, greater urges and drives, because he had succumbed to the temptation of the Sitra Akhra. That is the first effect. The second effect, when one sins, then the Sitra Akhra and his agents or evil forces surround the Nefesh Elyoyna of a person in order to prevent any influence or Shefa, that means divine influence, or spiritual light, which is called Haora, and influence or Hashpah from reaching that person. In other words, as a result of the sin, the Sitra Akhra and his agents or evil forces, they would surround the self or the nefesh al the spiritual self of a person, <clears throat> and they would prevent any kind of divine influence or light from reaching that person. Now I just want to mention that the agents of the Sitra Akhra are called klipas, which is a term that I use very often. And the reason why they're called klipas uh, first of all, klipois means shells or husks. And the reason why the agents or the evil forces that belong to the Sitra Akhra, the reason why they're called klipois or shells or husks, is because they are to be discarded and thrown away like shells or husks of a uh, fruit. But there's another reason which is more profound why they are called husks or shells. And that is that just as the shell or husks guard, guards the seed or the kernel from anyone utilizing or benefiting from the seed, so also these evil forces try to guard and prevent anyone from deriving any use or benefit from the sparks of holiness which they surround and which they themselves try to usurp the power of these sparks of holiness for themselves. So just like the shell guards the kernel or the seed where nobody can use or benefit from it, these evil forces guard the sparks of holiness and surround it so nobody could use it, rather they are the only ones that want to be able to use it. Therefore they are called husks, shells or clippers, and that is a term that I always use. Now, as I said, the effect of sin is that these clippers surround the nefesh al and they prevent divine light or hashpah or shefa influence uh, from reaching that nefesh al In other words, the sin gives them permission to surround that person. Now, you'll ask why? Why do they have permission to surround that person if that person does a sin? So, if you remember from the previous shurim, a sin testifies. Yesh When somebody does a sin, what he's doing is really doing what he wants, 
to do. So what he's really saying in effect, or testifying, is that I also exist independently of God, therefore I can do what I want. The sin testifies therefore, or his behavior against the will of God testifies to the concept that he also exists independently from God. In other words, yesh oid milvadoi, milvadoi besides God, yesh oid. There is another entity, namely the person who sins. <coughs> Therefore, in consequence to this testimony of yesh oid milvadoi, then the or, the shefa of God, which is nothing more than the revelation of ein oid milvadoi, that God is the only being that really exists, is denied that person, giving that person a great state of hesti yechudai. Zeh l'uma zeh, midah keneged midah, measure for measure. You did a sin, you testified that you exist independently of God, therefore you are entitled to do your will. Therefore, the light, the hashpoh, the shefa of God, which is nothing more than the realization, and that is what Kedusha is, that is nothing more than the realization, realization that God is Enid Mavadoi that is denied to you because you testified the reverse of that concept. The agents responsible for denying this truth or these errors, these lights to the sinner, are the Sitrach and the Klippus. That's why it is perfectly natural for them to surround the Nefesh El when the person does a sin. They are merely agents that are carrying out the will or the testimony of the sinner. He testified, So the Klippus say, Okay, we will do exactly what you say. We will deny from you the Shefa, the light that declares In any case, uh, this is what they do. The spiritual and divine attachments to the Nefesh Elohim is all but impossible as a result of the surrounding by these Klippus of the Nefesh Elohim. Uh, it is all but impossible making Ruach HaKadosh and Avua totally inaccessible and unobtainable. Thus sins testify to Yesh Edmavadoi that besides God there is another independent being, namely the sinner, which enables the Sitra Achra and all his Klippus to deny you of the Giloi, the revelation of the truth of Ein Oidmulvadoi, that there is nothing that exists but God Himself. That is the second consequence of sin, that Klippus surround you or your Nefesh and deny entrance to Shefa of the Rabbanu Shlolem. And again, it's a consequence of your testimony. Now the third idea or the third effect of sin is the following. It is the task of man to create all the necessary pipes, conduits or conveyors for the divine presence or the divine flow to permeate all creation in a state of revelation, which of course is eventually perceived by all creation. In other words, each Jew is assigned a task of creating a pipe or a conduit by which the flow of the divine presence comes down and pervades the universe and is revealed to all creation. It is only through the performance of the mitzvahs that this can occur, and I will explain them in the next state. 
Now each person is responsible for a certain section of the conduit or the pipe being made. And I will explain there what the conduit is. But in any case, the only way the pipe or conduit or conveyor of this divine flow, the only way it can be constructed is through the mitzvahs. And each person is responsible for a specific section of the general piping that transmits or conveys the presence of God to the universe. When a person sins, then he destroys or damages those sections of the conduit or pipe which he has been assigned to establish and construct, thus severely limiting the amount of divine flow he can now receive. Now this is also a consequence of a sin which says, Therefore the pipe is broken or damaged, it denies the flow of to the person himself. Now, therefore, even without the severe limitations of the Shefa or the influence being caused by the Klippus which surrounds his Nefesh in other words, even without the cause of sin which creates limitations on the amount of Hashpa or Urus that he can receive as a result of the fact that the Klippus surround him. Even without that, there is in addition greater cause or a new reason or factor for the limitation of the Divine Presence. And that is because of the damage done to the conduit, to the pipes, which resulted from, from the person's sins. Of course, all this occurs on the spiritual planes which the person who sins is totally unaware of. Thus, not only is attachment to the spiritual and divine prevented and obstructed, thereby making Ruch Kodesh and Nevoah, prophecy, totally beyond reach, but in addition, the Nefesh Elyoyna of a person is subject to the sufferings and afflictions and grief, that is, the necessary consequences of being surrounded by the Klippus as a result of sins being committed by that person. In other words, Sin, or the effect of sin, has a unique way of affecting the person. Not only does it deny the Shefa, the Ashpor, or the Divine Light, to the person because he damaged the conduit that he was supposed to have constructed, those conduits that he was assigned to, which permit the Divine Flow to himself, not only is it denied access to those Urus, or lights, but also, he is now surrounded by Klippus who are also denying him access to divine lights. But they cause, besides the absence of divine lights, a great many sufferings and grief, which is the consequences of his sin. So it's sort of like a double um, <clears throat> consequence of sin. In summary, then when one sins, one increases his potential for greater Geshen attachment. That's the first consequence of sin. The second is one surrounds himself with Klippus. That's a second consequence. And the third consequence is that one damages the conduits for, which, for the divine flow to which he was assigned to construct and therefore limits the amount of Shefa from the Rabbani Shalom that he can now receive. Thus, in all three events, the Nefesh el is prevented from experiencing attachment to either spiritual beings or to the Shekhinah, 
and therefore Ruach HaKodesh or prophecy becomes unattainable. Thus the absence or removal of sins is a prerequisite condition that must be satisfied even before one engages in the procedure of meditation on Hashem in order to elicit the spiritual phenomena of Ruach HaKodesh, divine inspiration and Nevoah or prophecy. Now you may ask, well how does a person then remove sins? Now there are some people who never sin, they are lucky. But for most of mankind who sin, how do they remove sin? If it is so crucial a condition in achieving Ruach HaKodesh in Nevoah. And the answer is of course, tshuva or repentance. Tshuva of course is the way or the method whereby all sins, no matter what they are, can be erased and removed. In fact, tshuva is so great a method that he who does tshuva sincerely and completely <coughs> is actually greater in certain respects than a tzaddik who has never sinned at all. Tshuva can undo or reverse all the effects of a sin to such a state that one would not even be able to detect the presence of any former sins. So as you see, tshuva was the vehicle the device or the method which an individual who wanted to attain spiritual advancement would be constantly availing himself of. People who are interested in spiritual advancements are always doing tshuva because they want to remove the effect of sin, those three effects, greater Geshem attachments, clippers surrounding the nefesh and the damage to the conduit which limits the amount of divine flow that you can receive. Tshuva does, removes all three. It, it reduces the amount of Geshem attachments which sin produced. It removes the klipas around the nefesh and leaves you free and unrestricted toward divine flow. And also it undoes the damage to the conduit, which is the way you receive uh, the divine presence, the Shekhinah, or the divine flow. We are now into the last state, or the next and last state or condition that was necessary for the attainment of Ruach HaKodesh and Nevoah was the Kedusha state or the Holiness state. This condition was different in its necessity than the previous three mentioned. In other words, the precious state, the Tahara state, and the Nakia states were all necessary in order to remove inhibiting agents of spiritual attachments, namely Geshem, physicality or materialism, Tumor, the metaphysical entity called Tumor, and Chet, sin or transgression. Any one of these three ideas, Geshem, Tumor, or Chet, would prevent entirely or severely curtail the spiritual attachments necessary for the realization of Ruach HaKodesh and Nevoah. The Ketusha state or holiness state was necessary to promote or enhance the attachment phenomena rather than remove an inhibiting agent or factor. It's a different kind of condition. In other words, it enhances the phenomena, not merely removes an inhibitor of the phenomenon. What do I mean? As mentioned previously, 
The task of a Jew is to construct conduits, pipes, or conveyors for the divine presence, the Shekhinah, or the COVID, the glory of God, to flow and permeate all creation in a totally revealed state. What are the conduits and the pipes that I refer to? Well, the ten emanations of God, the Esospheres, these are the conduits or the pipes which were created in a deficient state, which meant that the divine presence in the spheres was not readily of revealed to creation. These spheres or emanations which contain the divine presence required tikkun, which is restoration, correction, or rectification. And then the divine presence in them would be readily perceived by all creation. Thus the conduit or the pipe that would permit the divine presence to be revealed would be the spheres, the emanations of God in a state of tikkun. Then the divine flow or presence would permeate creation. If the spheres would be in a state of tikkun. Now, each Jew, whether it be a man or a woman, is assigned a designated area of the spheres to masakin, to correct. Only that person, and only that person, could masakin or correct that part of the spheres, which would mean, which would then mean, that that person could receive the divine presence from the very area of the spheres that he was masakin. That was the source or the area that he would receive his revelation, was from the area of the spheres that he was masakin. Now, in other words, if a person did not masakin his area of the spheres, then obviously he would receive much less hashpor shefa, because you did not construct what you had to construct. The instrument that a person needs to massacre the spheres, and this is the only method, is the Torah, Mitzvahs, and Midas Tevahs. That is the only things that can massacre the spheres. Again, Torah is learning Torah, Mitzvahs is observing the commandments, and Midas Tevahs means to acquire good character traits, like humility, uh, not getting angry, kindness, and so on. <clears throat> there is no other method or device for taking of the spheres. Absolutely no other. Either you do this, or the job does not get done. Only Torah, Mitzvahs, and Midas Tevahs are made Yehudoi. In other words, only Torah or Mitzvahs or Midas Tevahs can testify to the oneness of God in that manner that would release the revelation of the unity of God to all creation, resulting in Hasogas Yechudoi, or the comprehension of that oneness for all created entities. That's why they're the only way. In order to release the revelation of the absolute oneness of God, that all creation should perceive the absolute oneness of God, you must testify to the absolute oneness of God. The only device that testified to the absolute oneness of God was either Torah, Mitzvahs, or Midas Tevahs. There is no other 
way that an individual could testify to the oneness of God. That is the incredible difference between Judaism and all those religions. Judaism demands action. <clears throat> it demands learning Torah, mitzvahs, observing the commandments, and of course, acquiring good traits. Because the vehicle or the essence of being masak in the spheres, of revealing the absolute oneness of God, is to testify to the oneness of God. And only the Torah, mitzvahs, or masam, uh, or rather, midas tevis, is the only way to actually testify to the oneness of God. That is the underlying rationale why this is the only 